Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. So the reading is Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 18, to the church in Thyatira, I believe. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of uh, food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and then, uh, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and who does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That, uh, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. And uh, so Thyatira, it is in this house now, Dan. Thank you for that. Just before we uh, begin and uh, I preach, a couple of updates for you. Firstly, welcome. If you're new here, first time perhaps you're visiting us, it was so good to be here with you today. Our vision at Trinity is to see the, the church on fire in the city alive, and um, it really looks like more Jesus, so we're going after him. Uh, you, you can join a group if you haven't. Those are great places to connect with other people and to go deeper in your journey with Jesus. More on the website on that, and if you'd like to host a group, then please speak to Amy Jones, who I think is at St. Andrews at the moment, but um, she'll be here a bit later. We are in Lent. Today is the first week of Lent. We started Lent last week at Trinity because we're so well prepared uh, for life. But um, this is an opportunity for us to renew our rhythms of, of scripture reading, prayer, reflection, to fast together on Mondays, and to share stories with one another. So uh, please do share your stories of what God is doing in your life at the moment with us. You can find out more about that again on the website. And finally, I am being licensed as the... Uh, vicar, I think, uh, uh, at uh, St. Andrews, the incumbent at St. Andrews, up the hill, uh, next Sunday, 6.30, as our evening service. So, understanding that I'm speaking here to the morning service, and there may be some who don't want to come back in the evening, but if you do, you would be welcome. We'll be hosting our evening gathering 
up the hill, and uh, we're looking forward to being together as one church and entering into a new phase of our life as a church. We're excited for what God has for us. Shall I pray? Father, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Come to the living waters. Come to Jesus Christ, the pure and spotless Lamb. Come to the one whose blood has paid for you. So Jesus, we welcome you to come through the words that I speak, however they might be delivered, I pray that you would come. And would you claim the heart of your church? We say we belong to you now. It's in your name I pray. Amen. There was a man in the last century, many of you will have heard of, called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a a saint and, in the end, a martyr. Now, his family were an aristocratic family. He was very well-to-do. And they were all academics, very clever. His father, I think, was an academic uh, psychiatrist, if I'm not very much mistaken. And that really ran through his family. He was one of those people who was good at everything. So alongside, you know, completing his PhD at 19 or something silly, he was also a concert-trained pianist. And, uh, you know, just one of those people who, if you meet them at your school, make you sick. Uh, But he, against really the wishes and the will of his family, certainly against their expectations, he had a call to the church and a call to ministry, and particularly a call to study and to teach Christian theology. And he took that seriously, even as a teen. And uh, that really led him to a different path, to walk a different path to those in his family. That was in many ways difficult for him, but it took him all over the world. He did a stint as a youth worker in Barcelona, uh, in a church there. He spent a lot of time in this country, and he ended up in New York. Uh, This was around the time that the Nazis were coming to power. He'd already been quite a strong critic of the Nazis. He had a, a Lutheran background in terms of his church, but in New York, he saw something different. He saw unchained worship in the black churches, and it it really struck him, it stuck with him, and he knew at that moment of his life, he had a choice to make. Do I stay here in the comfort of, of New York, or do I return to Germany and face what awaits me? Here is what he said. I think we have a quote on the screen. I've come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Now, the trials of this time were significant. Bonhoeffer went back to a church that was profoundly compromised in the question of its worship. 
And much of the church, the most of the church, particularly the state church, had completely fallen into uh, agreement with Nazi ideology. It was a difficult time. He became very critical of the government, and he was shocked by what he saw in the church. He is so shocked that it led him, against really his natural instincts, to split from the church and to found a new church called the Confessing Church. And he, he began his own seminary in Finkenwald. And this direct opposition eventually led him to join a plot against Hitler's life. And he was found, he was discovered, the plot narrowly failed. He was discovered, tried, sent to prison. And in a, uh, honestly, a tragic uh, moment, he was hung in Flossenburg concentration camp just two weeks before the war ended. This is what Daryl Johnson says about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. For as Dietrich Bonhoeffer argued, the human heart has the capacity for only one all-encompassing, all-embracing allegiance. There's only room in your heart and my heart for one king. Bonhoeffer lived with that truth in his heart, he died for that truth. He saw a church that was radically compromised and he was willing to offer everything to see it pure again. We are in a series in Revelation. And really, the Apostle John is a first century Bonhoeffer figure, isn't he? He's exiled to Patmos, not to, not to Flossenburg concentration camp, but the isle, island, if it can be called that, of Patmos, from where he writes this massive unveiling. He has this vision and he writes a letter to a series of churches speaking about a deeper and a different vision for what it looks like to live a life less ordinary, to live a life of worship that is not in any way compromised, not to Nazi ideology, but to the Roman state and all that came with it. And this unveiling comes, as we've seen, a grand vision of Jesus after which we read seven letters to individual specific churches. And we, this morning, are in the fourth of those letters. And that letter is to Thyatira, Thyatira, or whichever you would rather. Now, it's interesting as we read this letter, as Dan has read to us already, here's what we read. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, a new one, just came out, right, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze, so here's a letter to a church, but the first thing the letter says is not something about the church, it's something about Jesus, so simple, isn't it, but for the church to be the church, first thing in the church has to be Jesus. I do not assume when I see the word church that Jesus is first in that place. I don't assume when I wake up in the morning that Jesus just naturally is going to be first in my heart. It's a daily Daily work, isn't it? To come before God in repentance, confession, and to give him my heart, and it will be the same for you. 
Jesus is first in the church. That's what John sees, and not just Jesus, but Jesus, the Son of God. Now, this is the first time, the only time in Revelation, this phrase, Son of God, is read, is heard. Why is it here? Well, in this particular place, Domitian, the emperor, was worshipped as Son of God. So here, Jesus is saying, look, I'm the one, and I'm the only one who is deserving of that name. Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Those of us who've been with us from the beginning of this series, or perhaps who've read Revelation as your homework, you know that both of these pictures, the eyes like fire, the feet like bronze, come from that big vision that John had of Jesus. The eyes penetrating the exterior, seeing into the real thing. This Jesus who sees beyond appearances into the heart of his church, who sees through words and behaviors into hearts, who judges the hearts of every person. This is the Jesus who's standing before the church in Thyatira. I'm struggling to say it anyway now. And whose feet are like burnished bronze. This speaks of a a solid and a strong foundation. And that's the point of this letter to this church. This letter's all about foundations. It's all about where your feet are planted. And what we see with Jesus is his feet are planted in a place that cannot be moved. And of course, as often happens, what we see is Jesus. And then we turn to the church. And the the kind of report card, if you imagine, this is like parents' evening. The report card that's given is, is remarkably positive. This is one of the more positive of the letters, I think. Here's what we read. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Literally, that reads, the last works are greater than the first. This is a church in which the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of obedience to Christ is evident. There is love, there is faith, there is perseverance, there is service, And it's on the increase. This is a church where things are happening. Good things are happening. Like this church. There is love in this church. I see it every time I'm with you. There is genuine love in this church. There is service. There is faith. I believe there is an increasing measure of faith. And there is perseverance. Some of you are persevering at this time in significant and extraordinary ways. And I believe Jesus' word to you this morning is well done. I know your deeds. I see your faith. I see your love. Well done. And there's more. Nevertheless, he says to the church, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Now, at this point, we could digress and really never leave uh, the Old Testament. And I don't want to overdo kind of the historical context here, but there is clearly a person in this first century church or an idea, bearing in mind that a lot of what happens in Revelation is actually symbolic, A person or an idea at work in this first century church, Theatera, 
akin to, like that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Well, who was that woman Jezebel? She was an Old Testament figure. Some of you will know. You can read about her in 1 Kings. And she was the daughter of a king herself, the daughter of the king of uh, Tyre and Sidon, or as my friend who lives in Lebanon said to me this week, Tyre and Sidon, and he would know while we're on the issue of pronunciations. Now, she was a Baal worshiper. Baal was the, the god of that particular part of the world at that particular time. She worshipped Baal with all that she had, and she married into the people of Israel. But not just kind of somewhere in the people of Israel, she married the king of Israel, King Ahab. Now, that was specifically prohibited, and yet King Ahab, who was a terrible king in almost every respect imaginable, married her. And she took up that position of power and significant privilege, and she began to use it to corrupt the worship of Israel. She caused the most extraordinary rupture in Israel's worship, and it was all about compromise. She persuaded Ahab to build an altar in Samaria, the capital. An altar to Baal in Samaria. She built, uh, created space for Asherah poles, places of worship, uh, too, all over the country. Everywhere you, you went, you could see an Asherah pole, a place where Baal was worshipped in Israel. She funded herself, the, the 850 prophets to Baal, traveling prophets who would reinforce this message of worship to Baal. And wherever she found a prophet to Yahweh, who spoke out against this, she killed them. And the idea she was propagating was this. You could have Yahweh, but you could also have Baal. A bit of this and a bit of that. She was, the idea was the idea of both and, both and. The point was, and the problem was, and this is what the prophets of Yahweh, like Elijah, got so frustrated with, both and wasn't really an Israelite idea. It certainly wasn't God's idea at first. Listen to this from Exodus 20, verses 3 to 6. You shall have no other gods Before me, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me. And keep my commandments. The worship of God is important. It cannot, according to God, be compromised. It can't be alloyed. It can't be added to. It can't be improved. There is no prescription for this day and age, which is Jesus plus. You can't improve on simply Jesus. But Jezebel, or whoever she was, or whoever was propagating this idea in this first century church, Thyatira was saying that it was indeed possible to add something to Jesus. 
And the key word here, I believe, is this word. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate. You tolerate. That woman Jezebel. You put up with. The word literally means you put up with. You permit. You pass over. You let go. You leave alone. In other words, I have this one thing against you, church. You're doing all this amazing stuff. But there's one thing I have against you. You're letting something slide. And what you're letting slide is really the purity of worship in the church. How is this happening? Yeah, we look back with kind of 2,000 plus years of distance now. We say it's impossible. How could they do this terrible, weren't they, in the first century? Goodness me, we've learned. Have not we learned? Well, Phaeta was a place of commerce. There were many trade guilds. The Romans didn't actually like trade guilds. They didn't usually uh, permit them to happen anywhere in the empire. But because Thyatira was so important for commerce, and particularly actually in providing commerce to Pergamum, who we met a couple of weeks ago, they let it slide. The interesting thing about the trade guild is that if you lived in a place where there were many trade guilds, you really couldn't get by financially unless you joined one. You couldn't really make it financially. It was an economic necessity to become part of one. It was a social thing as well, but it was economic. Listen to what William Barclay said. These trade guilds had common meals together. The meal would begin and end with a cup of wine poured out as a libation, a, 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 an offering, and an offering to the gods. It was, in fact, the heathen grace before and after the meal. Could a Christian join in a ceremony like that? Still further, such a meal would almost certainly follow a sacrifice. The token part of an animal would be offered on the altar. The meat of it would be given to the worshiper to make a feast to the members of his trade guild. Could a Christian sit and eat meat, which had been offered to idols? Could he participate in a meal where the meat had already been offered to Apollo or Artemis or Thrymnus, the local god? Still further, this trade guild feast not infrequently degenerated into carousals where drunkenness and immorality were the order of the day. Could a Christian participate in a feast where drunkenness and fornication were the accepted thing? It's never just about worship. It's worship and. Begins in worship. The purity of God's worship, the holiness of his people is directly connected to the purity of worship in the house of God. And where there is even a degree of compromise in the holiness and purity of the worship, everything else falls out of line also. And behind all of this is this idea, can it be both and? Or does it have to be either or? And for the church in Theatera, the question was, Do we go for our economic comfort? Join the trade guild. We'll add about 30% to sales. 
be helpful, can feed the family? Or do we refuse and entrust ourselves to God, come what may? Is it success? Is it Jesus? Is it relationship? Is it Jesus? Is it the opinions of others? Or is it Jesus? Nothing but faithfulness to Jesus is what Jesus longs for. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jealous for his worship, jealous for his glory in his house. Some of you may have heard recently stories from uh, a college, and I mean when I say college, university, in Kentucky, in that there United States, a place called Asbury, which has been uh, a place where God has visited a number of times actually in relatively recent history. But I was uh, with some of our team in uh, King's Cross this last Tuesday, and we had an opportunity to hear from some of the leaders from what is and proving to be a beautiful outpouring of the presence of Jesus in that place. And the story we heard was simply this, that two weeks before February the 8th, so sometime in January, 30 leaders gathered to pray on that campus in Asbury, leaders from all over the country, praying for an awakening amongst students. They spent three days praying, and at the end, an intercessor who was also a prophet and a a teacher, a a professor of uh, the prophets, Isaiah particularly, said to this chap who was being interviewed before us, we are on the edge of of an awakening. Two weeks later, on February the 8th, a man called Zach preached a sermon, and he preached a sermon in a chapel. It's a mandatory chapel. In order to get credits for your classes, you have to go to chapel three times a week. Can you imagine it? And so uh, it was running over a little bit like I am about to. And uh, as it was running over, students started to stand up and leave because they knew they needed to get to their classes because, you know, after all, classes is more important than chapel. And Zach knew this was happening, and so really just kind of cut short his message, already quite a short message, and just went into an altar call, half-hearted altar call. And most of the people left, but 12 people responded. And they came forward, and they, they, they uh, knelt at the altar, and they refused to leave. Some other people found out later that some other people who left and went to their classes had the strong burden as they left that they needed to return. And so they too returned. And uh, some kind of four hours later, by 3 p.m., some two students, 200 students or more were gathered to pray and to worship and to give testimony to what God was doing in that place. Uh, this chap who was being um, interviewed the other day said that he knew, he, he hurried down there about 3 p.m., because uh, he's one of the pastors on campus, and he knew something was happening when by 4 p.m., a young woman gave testimony in front of hundreds of her peers. She stood before them all, and she screamed out, if I've offended you, I'm sorry. Give me the chance to apologize personally. She said, my parents are both al- alcoholics. They're getting divorced this month. And two weeks ago, I tried to kill myself, but was unsuccessful. 
She said, I can't do life without God anymore. And I can't do life without you. Will you forgive me? She collapsed on the ground and a group of her friends surrounded her and began to pray over her. One of the campus uh, pastors said to this chap who was being interviewed, she has offended so many people on this campus. This really is a miracle. This move of God, this outpouring has been marked by deep and public confession, by joyful worship, by salvation, by healing and inner healing, and specifically, honestly, by deliverance, we're hearing. There's been testimony. There is student leadership. One thing my cousin Pete, who's just been there, told me uh, yesterday night as he was sitting in the airport, actually, he said there is a room, a consecration room, and before you come to lead worship, Uh, It's all led by students, there are no celebrities whatsoever except for Jesus. Before you come to lead worship, you have to spend half an hour in the consecration room. He said there's been stories of people coming up to lead worship and the, the sense is they're not right with God and they go back to the consecration room. There have been Christian celebrities asking to come and lead worship and being turned down. Doesn't that make you happy? It makes me happy. Really happy. (laughs) Because the worship of God's people matters and there's only room for one celebrity in the house of God. And in Asbury, the only celebrity is Jesus. So, this Tuesday we heard this story. Wednesday morning we showed this Zoom video to our staff team and we had a beautiful time of confession. Our staff prayers normally go until about 11. We were there till almost one. Hearing each other's confession, coming toward God, asking for a deep move of his spirit in us. Ash Wednesday service, some of you were there. It was again just a beautiful sense of hunger, repentance, confession, sense of God's presence with us. Thursday night in youth, unfortunately, they don't let me in. But what we heard was the same thing again. Youth, young people streaming forward. A chair on the stage uh, symbolizing Jesus' presence. The youth streaming forward, giving their confession, sharing their sense of calling, singing songs of worship, undivided worship. There is hunger again. There is faith for what God might want to do. And there is, and there must be, and this is the message. This is the message. This is the time. For there to be a deep longing to be right with God. Now is the time to be right with God. Now is the time to get right with God. Elijah, in his confrontation with the prophets of Baal, those 850 prophets funded by Jezebel, says these famous words in 1 Kings 18.21. Elijah went before the people and said, went before the people and said, how long Will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And I believe that what's happening in Kentucky, what's happening, uh, stirring maybe in us just at the moment, is that God is asking us, by grace, through his presence, to answer that question. How long will we waver? There's no time to waver. The Spirit of God is near. God's kingdom is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus says. Repent and believe. 
Repent means turn away. Believe means entrust yourself wholly, wholeheartedly to Jesus. It's a covenant word. It's a loyalty word. More than anything, you and I need to be right with God. Now is the time. So come. Come. And we're just going to respond together now in this moment. And... um, Let me just pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are near to us. Thank you that you already live within us and you already move among us. You've already shown us so much of Jesus. And yet, at the same time, there is so much more. And there is much to be learned and also to be unlearned.